0: Welcome to a, another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where our hope here is that theology doesn't suck. Uh, with you today, as always, is myself, Josh Patterson, and my. Ah, oh man, I have no adjectives. My co host, I was trying to think of a good one, Marty, I'm sorry, but my co host, Marty. I have no adjectives. I was going to say esteemed
1: co Esteemed co
0: host. Yes. Esteemed yes. co host, Martin
1: frederick martin scott frederick scott
0: frederick there you go
1: (laughs) does kind of sound more uh more glorious than i probably actually am ah
0: yeah martin scott frederick and and you can say that you have like a degree or something to make you seem cooler so i do perfect (laughs) i i know (laughs) we'll move on from that though marty yes Uh, so anyway typically uh marty we uh, when we do these things we have A little bit of banter in the beginning, which um, I don't know if you've gotten feedback on this, but my grandmother gets like kind of pissed. She's like, Josh, just talk about what you are going to talk about. Stop talking about hockey (laughs) or like whatever. (laughs) And so, uh, but instead of doing that today, um, I think we have a really cool opportunity because we have a a super cool guest. Her name is Sarah Bessie and she's with us right now. And I actually wanted to include her in our conversation. So why don't we go ahead and bring her in? What do you
1: think? I think that's great. Hi, Sarah.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks for ha- having me. And I'm, I'm always down to talk about hockey. So that's, that's fine too. Oh, that's... we'll
0: have to ask <laughs> the
1: question anyway.
0: Yeah, that's so perfect. So, we, we have a, uh, before we um, jump in, we have a question that we ask everybody who comes on the show. And uh, it's like we play it up like it's this really big deal question, but honestly, it's not. Um, but the question that, that we build people up to is uh, what's your favorite hockey team?
1: Oh, I know question. exactly where she's going to go. All right. <laughs> I
2: well, don't know if you do. It no, might surprise maybe you. <laughs> you. <laughs> you okay. uh, I have grown up and am an ardent fan of the Boston Bruins.
0: Ah, oh, interesting. Wow. Okay.
2: And uh, also the Calgary Flames. Okay. Those are my those are my two teams for sure.
0: That was not what I thought you were going to say. I, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably going to guess like the Canucks or something.
2: Yeah. yeah exactly no we have not uh, we are pretty new to the area. we've only been here for about fifteen years okay uh, but my dad was a huge Bruins fan came of age you know um you know, back when it was just the original six. Oh, and no. we lived in the prairies in Canada. And so your two options were either Toronto or Montreal. And so, of course, he picked Boston. <laughs> and then we've all been <laughs> raised in the uh, in the tradition of the Boston Bruins ever since. And then um, I lived in Calgary. It's uh, what I consider hometown. And so that was um, the team that I kind of, uh, you know, adopted um, back in the 80s and have always been a, a Calgary Flames fan as
1: well. Perfect. Josh? I think what we need to start doing, if we have if we have people on the show that actually know their stuff about hockey, like Sarah clearly does, we we have to ask a follow up question, and they have to name all original six hockey teams. <laughs> <laughs> and if they can't, then they then we just immediately cancel the interview. They that get canceled like Kanye. Like but <laughs> because I'm a Blackhawks fan, so when I hear you mention original six, I can throw Josh under the bus and say, "Ha ha, too bad for you." Expansion man, <laughs> <laughs> yes. At least
2: I'm, he's on an expansion team where they where they don't even have winter. That's that's true. That's,
0: <laughs> that's true. We
1: do have winter here
0: Panthers. in Maryland. <laughs> and the Washington Capitals. As I always say this because I know it's true. It's in the Bible, I think. Uh, that <laughs> Jesus, Jesus's favorite hockey team is the Washington Capitals. So, oh,
1: brother, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty I sure think Don Cherry would
0: agree with you.
2: <laughs> I think that's that. I think
0: that's <laughs> oh, got it, got it. <laughs> Perfect, awesome. Well, so I guess we didn't bring you here for this reason today, but um, it just so happened to work out uh, that a certain person said some rather inflammatory things recently. Uh, his name's John MacArthur. For our listeners who don't know, he's a, a relatively uh, famous and prominent, like evangelical pastor kind of guy, um, and he said some pretty not great things about women, uh, specifically in their role in ministry. And directly, he said that Beth Moore should, quote, go home. And Sarah, I have a feeling you might have some feelings about that. And so I thought maybe we could discuss that briefly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did have some thoughts and feelings. <laughs> um yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, um, nothing that John MacArthur said is a surprise. I mean, sure. he's he's had his hand, his cards be very clear about how he feels about women and, and women in ministry and, um, you know, a number of other conversations that have been happening in the church over the last number of years. And so I can't say that there's anything necessarily surprising. Um, I think that the reason why it caused such a furor and such a strong re- response um, was because it was a bit more than just, of course, Beth Moore, who's a very well-beloved teacher and um, really you wouldn't find someone who was kind of, you know, more, um, you know, connected, I think, to a lot of evangelical women, mm-hmm. um, has really taught and uh, ministered and discipled them. I think the thing that made it really um, upsetting for a number of people was the um, contempt mm. Right. With which he spoke um, the room full of people who were laughing.
0: Yeah,
2: um, that was upsetting. And of course, that's just such a different narrative than what we hear in Scripture and then what we, what I believe Jesus tells for women. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, everything about it, I think, was was really quite disgusting. And upsetting, and and I think in a lot of ways showed the level of insecurity and panic that a lot of um, people can have at the idea of uh, women uh, either preaching or leading or speaking up. Um, and so I don't know. I think I think a lot of us had this reaction. Um, to, to his words because we have heard them. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been in the room where we've been laughed at, or we've been told to go home, uh, either implicitly or explicitly. And um, with seeing that happen and then seeing the re- response of, the, of a lot of people to that, I mean, there were a lot of other comments he made that were equally disgusting. I mean, implying yeah. that diversity wasn't necessary because then you wouldn't have good Bible translation. I yeah. mean... <laughs>
0: Yeah. Goodness. Oh. <laughs> yeah.
2: there's so many layers of everything being wrong with that you yeah. know and and, and uh, so I, I you know it, it was a bit more than Beth Moore but at the same time that go home comment certainly galvanized a lot of people
1: yeah you know the, the one thing that stuck out to me the, the two things specifically besides the the obvious comment itself um, was the was the the the, the strong and the, yet implicitly theologically wrong statement that there is no biblical um, case for women preaching and leading <laughs> within the church. I mean, it's, he almost, says, it's
2: like I laugh because I'm just like, do you, do you even Bible bro? Like? Yeah.
1: <laughs> but then because, because that's the one side of it, but then the, that was disturbing. But then you also remember that if it wasn't on stage with him, uh, there were people in the room, there were probably hundreds of people in the room that had it with them, that uh, he also referred to Beth Moore as a narcissist,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: he has his very own study Bible with his name on it. <laughs> um, and there were many men, I'm sure, in the room that own that study Bible and probably had it with them. Um, and so so many of the comments, we actually had a conversation about this at our church. We we do a, a regular Sunday thing where we have conversation around social issues that have just occurred. So this was the the, the best you know most reason, recent thing to discuss and um, you know that was just one of the one of the things was it just like you said it, it wasn't even as much the the comment which which it was, but then the idea that you can see that behind those words there is more to how he actually feels deep down inside. Mm. Um, and it's not just simply a, Oh, well, you know, listen, here's what I really honestly think theologically and here's where I'm coming from with this. And like, listen, I know people are on both sides of the fence on this and I get it, but like this is just really what I feel convicted by. It wasn't that, it wasn't a theological thing. It was, you know, you know, statements made like, um, if we allow this, then the feminists have won the battle and, you know, go home, which of course has the, yeah, Josh is holding up Jesus feminist right there. So, yeah. which of, which of, you know, we'll send a go copy home. to John MacArthur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm sure he's read it. Um, you know, saying go home, of course, has the, has the connotation of your role as the home in the kitchen and nowhere else. And so to me, like there is so much beyond it, but, um, At the same time, I just I sit there and I look around the room of people and in that conversation and look around the room in my church that Sunday morning as I had just got done leading worship. And I see so many women gifted in so many ways that I am not um, Mm -hmm. able to lead and teach in so many ways that I cannot. Hmm. And uh, and I just think, you know, I'm so grateful for diversity in the Holy Spirit that gifts men and women to be able to advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps John MacArthur has been believing a wrong view of the gospel. Uh, (laughs) And and because he's been believing this wrong view of the gospel, it it allows him to feel this. I I need to get off my soapbox (laughs) because you're not here to hear my opinion on this. And it's not even the episode conversation, but, um, because we could do a whole episode about this. Um, And but but I I just that was my thing is just, you know, you see a man who clearly has an axe to grind that he's wanted to grind for a long time. And it was his obvious opportunity. And he's kind of says, like, oh, you're you're setting me up. But at the same time, I'm sure he was like if he wasn't drooling, actually, he was drooling metaphorically. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, it's it's. Man, it's so unfortunate. And again, too, like we—I know we didn't bring you here to talk about this, but just in, in closing thought, um, like when this came up at work, uh, I was chatting with some of my coworkers. Uh, so I work at an egalitarian church. My, you know, the executive pastor, my direct report is Pastor Jeanette. Um, she's awesome, and um, we were talking, and I—I I mentioned something like I don't understand why why people. Uh, keep going on about this because, in my experience, I've always grown up surrounded by women in ministry, and then they pointed out to me, were like, "Like, I mean, I'm not trying to call you out, but also that's an extremely like male privileged thing to say," <laughs> because yeah, you don't have to think no. about it. You're right, and I was like, "Oh shoot, I just made myself look like an idiot." So that was a really eye opening conversation for me as well.
2: Yeah, Yeah. you know, I think that that's that's part of it as well, is that, I mean, I grew up in a home and in a church community that was staunchly egalitarian. And so in a lot of ways, that is a form of blindness, right? You don't really understand, um, you know, how different it is. And I think that that's even what my heart is in the midst of all of this, is to— You know, to name it and to identify it as really as as damaging and oppressive as it actually is. Uh Um, But then continue to speak to people and say, listen, Jesus did not call you to a go home life.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. whether,
2: you know, when you look through scripture and you look through the story of the church, that over and over there's a story of empowerment um, and being called to life and life more abundant, you know, especially mm. for those of us who oftentimes have, um, you know, felt silenced or um, marginalized within communities. And that's not, ex- you know, obviously exclusive to women by any stretch of the imagination. And so right. I think that um, being able to name it, being able to decenter it is good. I think in a lot of ways, sometimes people will kind of kick rocks and say, oh well, it's just, you know, not really a gospel issue and it's not really a big thing. When the Uh when the truth is is that it it is, right? I mean this is one of those things that um you know when you are reducing or marginalizing the image of God in anybody Uh then that is that is part of what what is right at the center of who we are, right? And so as you were saying, when you don't have women in the room uh, when you don't have women at the table, you're missing part of the image of God.
0: Yeah, mm, right? absolutely. You're
2: missing part of the gospel absolutely. and how it is how it is lived out. And so that to me is a real tragedy.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Wow, that's really beautifully said. Thank you for that. Um, so I guess we'll uh, kind of, if you could give you know a little bit of background, I think uh, people might uh, recognize your name from... Maybe reading one of your books out of sorts, or Jesus feminist, or perhaps uh, they ran into you at some kind of speaking engagement, um, or heard your name associated with uh, you know some other people as well. But can you just tell us a little bit about Sarah Bessie? Who are you? What do you do? That kind of stuff.
2: Oh sure. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, so I'm a writer. Uh, I've written a, a few books. Um, I also organize a conference called Evolving Faith, mm. um, which I have. Uh, Started with my uh, friend Rachel Held Evans, who passed away earlier this year. Yeah, um, and we are continuing on with that work um, alongside of Jeff Chu and a number of other people who have kind of come alongside of us, uh, which has been really helpful uh, in in the wake of her just tremendous loss. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, I speak and do, you know, a, a bit of work here and there. I'm on the board at uh, ministry in Haiti that works with women, particularly around maternal health care. Um, and so that takes up a, a good amount of time. And I'm uh, married and I have four children as well. Mm-hmm. So my husband and I have been together for um, over 20 years, and we have four kids that range from preschoolers to teenagers. So yeah. a lot of big feelings in our house. <laughs> 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 um, and I, as I said uh, earlier, I live in uh, Western Canada, just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia.
0: Hmm, cool. I've and always. I think that's
2: about it, right? Yeah. And a shot for the Bruins. So that's the important. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that man, Canada. Uh, that that's a place I've always really wanted to visit. That's definitely on my bucket list, and my my wife agrees. So, she, I think she's yeah. actually been before, and I haven't. So really, I'm the lame one. That's what it I've comes been to too.
1: I've been to saint Marie. Um, because I went to college in the upper peninsula of Michigan. So one day, a bunch of friends and I, we drove across the border, got a beer and drove back. <laughs> that story checks out with almost every American <laughs> so I, near, the, I can near say, the border. Yes, I can say I had a Lebat blue and it and it was an actual, <laughs> oh, it was an actual town bar. It was, a, it was, it was as towny and Canadian as it gets. <laughs> and they didn't even, they were like they, I, someone handed them a $10 U S dollar bill and they were like, what is this? You know, we don't want this money. <laughs> and then I've been hiking in Nova Scotia. So I've, but I've not been, I've always wanted to go to Vancouver and I've not been in Vancouver, um, or any of Western. I'd love to go, uh, anywhere, Northern Canada. And you know, I'd, the, the Yukon seems like a place I'd love to visit just for the fun of it. But, um, uh, but yes, that Blue and Nova Scotia.
2: <laughs> well, I promise we can do better than Bat Blue for you. I'm sure you come and visit.
0: <laughs> the yes. county
2: bar cannot be improved upon.
0: Yeah, perfect. Sweet, awesome. So, um, recently, uh, Sarah, you you put out a brand new book uh, called "Miracles and Other Reasonable Things: A Story of Unlearning and Relearning God." Um, I said this to you off air, which hopefully it, it didn't weird you out, but after reading your book, I felt like I know you or I have known you for a long time. And like us having this conversation now is like old friends getting together, you know? Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a really beautiful thing. I don't think I've ever been, uh, captivated that way by an author. Um, and it just personalized the message of your book so much, um, in a way that was really helpful to me um, and actually pretty healing as well. So I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um, and so kind of like your, your book is like this, uh, almost like, uh, like a journal or spiritual memoir of you going through this really difficult, um, tragedy, this thing that happened in your life and kind of you wrestling with God and, and all the way out through that. Um, and so I think it'd be cool to kind of just, uh, paint that, that journey for people, but, Ah, uh, before we do, why can you tell us like why did you write this book? Who who did you write it for? Why did you write it? That kind of stuff.
2: Well, thank you for everything that you said. That means a lot to me to hear. That's true. Oh, sure. Um, I think that's one of the things that I wanted right, for this book was that sense of being alongside of, of someone, of not feeling like it's someone on a pedestal or on a platform in front of you who's just like handing down the word, right? But there's sure. a sense of camaraderie um, and journeying together. Um, you know, my first two books, um, Jesus Feminist and, and Out of Sorts, uh, for sure, I used a lot of my own story to grapple with kind of theological issues, or grapple with the things that I felt like um, I was encountering in Scripture and in the church, and even in this moment in time, right? For kind of where we have been as a church. Um, but that last one came out about four years ago, and then the things that kind of began uh, that I write about in this book—you know—that that starts with a car accident that I experienced very shortly after that book was um, actually coming out, um, really did change me. Right. And in a lot of ways, um, I went back and tried to write the way that I always had before, uh, and just found that the spirits abs was not happening there or Hmm. the magic wasn't there or something wasn't there. And I could try to force it, which I think some people, you know, maybe you can get away with for a while. Um, I didn't get to get away with it. And so in a lot of ways, coming back to, um, to writing and coming back to it through this book in particular, I think it was primarily about saying, I literally feel like I cannot continue in any form of public ministry or anything until I have been honest about where I have been for the last number of years and where, where I have been even with God. And so if my first two books were more theological with some memoir kind of, you know, as a found, as a foundation or as kind of a storytelling, you know, device, this is way more memoir, right? And I don't know that I'll ever do that again. <laughs> 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 (laughs) (laughs) It was, you know, more about the story and about the things that you kind of explore and encounter, um, with the Holy Spirit as you are walking through that. Um, and so for me, it was a joy to write. Um, there was a real lightness to it, even though the subject matter can sometimes be heavy, Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it felt really um, necessary. And a lot of the reason why that is, is because I think people like me, people who have found themselves um, standing at that intersection between uh, really believing very deeply in the miraculous and deep, believing deeply in the power and uh, of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and yet still holding space for those of us who have unanswered prayers, those of us who, um, you know, live with very ordinary forms of suffering that are continuing and and have no resolution even um, I don't didn't see a lot of our stories reflected back to me yeah. um, I think particularly around the Holy Spirit in particular which again it's kind of a weird book right it's a little yeah. bit woo-woo in some of those ways <laughs> um, and being able to reflect back even the um, the losses but also the tensions I think that we often find when we are talking about miracles and we're talking about prayer because usually we have to hold both hope and grief in our in our hands at the same time
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Sarah, can I ask you a question? Have you ever read anything or met an author by the name of Adele Alberg Calhoun?
2: You know, I don't believe I have. But then again, sometimes I can't remember everything I've read. I'm sorry. She,
1: it's all right. She, she writes a lot of ten, like books. Like there's like one called *The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook*, um, but then there's another one called *Invitations from God*. Um, which talks about how God invites us into different aspects of life with him. And and what was really interesting to me is I was reading, uh, Josh and I were talking about different portions of the book and I was reading her, her books read very much, you know, in that sort of way as Josh is talking about where they <clears throat> connect with the, with the author um, based on the way that they're writing and telling the story. So um, if you knew who she was, I was going to say it was very, it's very similar to her hmm. style of writing, but, even without knowing who she is that's a very it's just a very easy way to read the book because you're you're drawn in and before you know it you're 80 pages in yeah (laughs) (laughs) um which makes it which always makes the desire to go and read that book more and then read more by that author Mm -hmm. there and so it was that that's just something that stuck out to me too
2: well, that's good to hear. I'll have to get you to send me her name later so I can look at uh, look into her work a little bit sure. more. But yeah. Yeah. I think that that's always one of the things that I have loved. There's there's two compliments as a writer that I really love, and one of them is when you know you're at an event or a book signing or you run into somebody at the airport or something, and they want you to send their book and it's like marked up and dog-eared and <laughs> underlined and like yeah. cover, covers chewed. I love that with my whole heart. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is when people say that they read it in one sitting right? Mm. When they say that they picked it up and they couldn't put it down. And, um, and that to me means a lot because it means that you've got a chance to really, I mean, again, people are busy, yeah. right? Yeah. And people yeah. don't read quite like, you know, maybe, um, or have even the time or the attention or the room. Um, and so when people trust you with their time like that, it means a lot to me. So thank you. That's good to hear.
1: Yeah. I always try to get my wife to read books. And whenever I sit down to read books, she's always, we have four kids as well. And she'll say, <laughs> she'll say, Hey, you know, it's not really all that fair that you get that you're that you get to sit down and read right now, <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, w- would you like to read too? No, that's okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> more the principle of the thing. Yeah, it's yeah, funny. funny. <laughs> Hello, you are listening to. The theology
0: doesn't suck, podcast. dude. Marty, no, that's people don't want to hear it that way, man. It has to be, it has what? to be more enthusiastic like this. Do you love theology doesn't suck? Have you been listening to this show because you truly believe theology doesn't
1: suck? Th- no, dude. What, dude? That's that's like that's it's so nerdy. Like people are like people don't think that's genuine, man. That sounds so weird. Oh. It needs to be something like this. It needs to be like. You know, hey guys, like I don't know if you realize, but we have a patron feed, and it's it's so awesome because like you get a lot of really cool stuff, and you just like you just have to give us some yeah, money yeah, but we can't
0: just straight up be like, hey yo, give us your money because that's like people don't want to do that
1: either. It's disrespectful to our listeners. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So how about we do something like this? How about we do like, hey guys. It's Josh and Marty from Theology Doesn't Suck podcast. And, you know, here's the thing we love doing this podcast, but, you know, as you probably know, it takes a lot of effort. And, like, we've got an awesome guy behind the scenes named Matt who does, like, all of our awesome editing and all that stuff. And, you know, it takes equipment and time. And so, like, you know, one of the things that we love about Today's day and age is that there could be people out there that love our show so much that you just want to support us. And so, Josh, we started this awesome patron feed, and like, Josh, how, how can they find it? Like, what, what, what kind of stuff should they look oh, for? Oh,
0: well, yeah, and then we, we, well, we could tell them then, like, hey, go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck, and whereas for as little as one dollar a month, right, you could become a patron. Uh, And we have some different, you know, we could tell them about the different tiers, you know, where where some tiers gives you access to a a Facebook group specifically for patrons that allows you to do things like submit questions to be asked on episodes, uh, submit questions for bonus content, which, hey, bonus content is a part of another tier, some bonus episodes that are, you know, close to the public. So we could tell them those kind of things, right?
1: yeah and and one other thing we could do which would be really cool josh is like every once in a while just because we're really good people we could like send them stuff either digitally or like through actual mail that's kind of cool like you know like i play in a band so like what if we come up with a cd and like we've got a cd and i just want to send it oh yeah or something You know, like you know like that's another cool idea so like you know Maybe that could be like some of the higher tiers. So like they would, you know, they would never know that something cool was coming. But then like, hey, surprise, this is coming to you.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And like we could say like Christmas cards, cute stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that that'd be great. How about all right. Well, Uh, then how about we just tell people that and uh, yeah, hopefully they go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck and join our, you know, theology doesn't suck community.
1: Josh I think I think this is a good way For us to do this So I think okay Let's record this And Wait Dude I've been recording This whole time
0: Oh yeah me too Alright how about this Let's just Send this to Matt And uh We'll just go with it Yeah Alright Thanks guys We love you
1: Back to the show (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I think one, if I could give you one more compliment, too, before we move on. And I you use this phrase, like, I don't mean this in, like, a woo-woo way. <laughs> but almost, I guess, it, it's kind of like that. Um, there was, like, a sense of... I don't know how else to explain it than this, so hopefully it's not weird. But there was, like, a sense of, like, holiness while I was reading your story. Um, and I don't know how else to explain it. Like, it was... Uh, like, I very much felt uh, God and the Spirit in the pages of your book. I th- and I think perhaps because of the... um, It was just so much of yourself and your story and it was honest and it was truthful and it was raw. And I think that's where God finds us. Like, you talk about... Um, I'm going to get the phrasing wrong, but, like, letting God touch you in your most tender places. Um, and I... F- I just feel like I don't know. Like there's something holy about reading your book.
1: <laughs> it yeah. was it was
0: really cool. Like seriously, I've, I've not read a book like it, and so thank I, you. Yeah, that means
2: a lot to me <laughs> to hear. I think that I think in a lot of ways that's the mystery sometimes of those sorts of encounters because I've had encounters like that when I read books, and you're like, wow, all of a sudden this is like a thin place yeah. right? between you and the Holy Spirit, and it's like. Did, and yet it was written, you know, in another time or place or moment yeah. or whatever else. Um, and I think there is something just really beautiful about that, right? And being able to, um, to have those sorts of experiences, uh, they matter to me as well. I think, too, um, you know, I come from a charismatic background, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, kind of that charismatic renewal movement that, um, you know, has roots in Azusa and Pentecostalism and, you know, wove through. And yet that is a part of my faith that I've often kept very private. Right. And a lot of my work and a lot of my writing, I think, because the, the dominant narrative around people like me is that we're, you know, it's not so great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it can be hard to talk about it in a way that feels genuine and feels inclusive and doesn't feel judgmental or um, dogmatic, right, or fundamentalist in a, in a lot of ways. And so in, in some ways, I was really scared. Right, to put this book out there because it does kind of pull the curtain back on some of those, uh, on that aspect of my faith that I haven't talked about quite as much, um, you know, with maybe as much openness. And I don't know that I felt it reflected back to me with a lot of thoughtfulness because usually it's people who are like, it's completely wrong. Everything about it is broken. These people are weird snake handlers. <laughs> blah blah. blah. Right. You know, <laughs> you know. Or it's people from within my camp who were like, "This is the only way to be. We are the only ones who are spirit filled. We are the only one." You know. Yeah. And so charting a path, you know, there had felt really fraught. And so mm-hmm. that makes me feel really good to to know that that landed in that way. So thank you for that, Josh. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was it was it was really cool. Like. Man, I don't know. I don't have words for it. <laughs> it was it was a, a very cool experience. Um, so you kind of just uh, mentioned it there, but I think, and maybe it doesn't require much more detail, but I think it helps kind of frame your story, uh, your upbringing, like in faith, and you talk a lot about like the influence uh, that your father had on you and your on your faith, and um, that really I think plays a, a big part of your story as it kind of shapes out. Uh, is there anything that you would like to To mention about that, that might be helpful to our conversation.
2: Um, You know, I think like most people, I mean, I remember hearing ages ago, I mean, probably back before I was even, you know, writing, that almost all of theology is actually autobiography. Mm. (laughs) It's nice. It's actually your story. It's how you've encountered God um, and the things that have mattered to you in a lot of ways. And I think losing that um, awareness means that then you assume your story is the only story. Right. You assume that your way of encountering God is the only way is the way everybody encounters God or, yeah. you know, your way of reading the, the scripture is, is the objective way. Right. And so yeah. I think placing things within context and with time, even whether you are reading scripture or you're reading anybody, uh, is helpful because, I mean, otherwise, how do you know how they landed kind of where where they are? And so I find um I find it helps me to love and know and follow Jesus better when I know and why other people who are very different than me uh, know and love and follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that invitation it just makes God m- so much more expansive and and good, right? To to begin to trace that that path in other people's lives other than just your own. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and so um, man, so you had this this upbringing in your faith with the the more charismatic. Movement and then basically you're you're going and you're doing your thing and you were uh, if I remember correctly you were teaching at a women's conference and you went out to Tim Hortons uh, which that peak Canadian (laughs) dude but here's the thing that's on my bucket list like I need to get coffee from Tim Hortons it's a thing (laughs) I I told Noelle uh, Noelle's my wife I told her the other day when. Uh, I was reading. I stopped. I was like, "Noel, we have to go to Canada so we can go to Tim Hortons." <laughs> she was like, "That's why you that want to go to good. Canada." <laughs> that
2: sounds good. Listen, yeah. I mean, you know, going for a donut and a Timmy's is never a bad reason to do anything. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, basically, that's when there was a major shift. There was there was something big that happened in your life that I, I guess maybe you could call like a, a pivotal. Point in your life where a, a life changing thing happened. Can you just talk about that?
2: Sure. Um, so I was teaching at a women's conference. Um, you know, which I do. Uh, I used to do quite quite frequently. Um, and then uh, when I, you know, like a lot of introverts, I think sometimes when you're in those sorts of environments, whether it's a conference or a, you know a busy work environment or something like that, you'll just kind of try to snag a few minutes to yourself. And I've learned that having a car is a great place to do that. And so I just kind of, it was a break in the day and I thought I'll just go and get myself a cup of tea or a coffee. And so jumped in the minivan and just kind of popped out, um, and was in a really devastating car accident on, um, on the highway that day. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's an overstatement to call it a pivotal moment. I mean, it was, um, I have my life. It's a demarcation in my life. There's my life before and my life after. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is God before and God Mm -hmm. after. Yeah. Right. In a lot of ways, I think that most people who have moments like that, whether they are visible to people like mine was or they are more internal, um, you are unmade in response to um, something that has happened in your life. And in a lot of ways, the. Um, there was a phrase that really caught my attention when I was still in, in an active healing kind of mode in the years after that. Of, um, of from a 14th century mystic named Meister Eckhart, and he would say, uh, "God becomes and God unbecomes." Hmm. Yeah. And then there was almost like this cyclical thing too, especially in the German, um, which I won't attempt to inflict on anybody. <laughs> 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 so Canadians from Scottish descent should not attempt German, I guess, but. There was this sense of that there God unbecomes and then God becomes, that God unbecomes and God becomes, and that any time that you think you've kind of got your box suitably built around God, this is how God acts, this is who God is, this is how God interacts with me, this is what it all means. Um, you know, an experience like this, um, it shows you, I think, the limits of those boxes. Mm. Uh, well, you know, and this is the tenderness of Jesus, that at the same time that that box can get exploded and all of a sudden you're kind of sitting in this space in the ruins of it almost. And are like, I don't even know where the street signs are right now for who God is. Um, somehow still Jesus will meet with you within the boxes that you've created. Mm. Uh, and learning how to see that, you know, we are unmade. And then remade in response to the ways that God is made and unmade for us. Um, And again, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that in the sense of um, that God actually is unmade, but more perhaps our perception, right? Our perception of God, our image of God, our way of understanding God. Um, We are always being remade in response to, you know, the unchanging one, right? Yeah. that we're receiving greater awareness or greater revelation or understanding we're living longer than a hot second and understanding that we're doing It's not necessarily the way that everybody will be able to do it. Right.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So what are like, what are some examples or, or some uh, ways that um, God has been, was like unmade for you during this, these experiences? And then we'll, we'll jump into how he was remade. Cause I think some remaking happened in some, uh, unexpected places, but I'm interested first, what, what, uh, kind of unmaking happened for you?
2: You know, it's an, it's an interesting story for me from that perspective because, um, in a lot of ways, the story in which I came to miracles at is, is maybe a bit different than the majority of, you know, the the church at this moment in time. Um, a lot of people, for instance, um, you know, are taught that everything passes through God's hand, that God is sovereign, um, and God is the author of everything, right? That everything's ordained by God, and so therefore your suffering, your cancer, your divorce, your, you know, poverty, or whatever it is, um, is directly from God. And so then you're left to grapple with, well, what's the nature and character of God? We're Whereas the way that I was raised um, was that God was good, right? And that God wanted, and, and, you know, for all the faults and failings of the, you know, charismatic prosperity gospel and word of faith movement, it gave me a really beautiful picture of God. It gave me a, a picture of God who, that was uh, for your thriving, uh, for your flourishing. Um, but then on the flip side, that gave you then this sense of, well, if God is good and God longs for my health and wealth and prosperity and <laughs> whatever else it is. Uh, and if that's not happening, if my prayers aren't being answered or those things aren't coming together for me, then the problem must be me.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: That it's it's my lack of faith. It's my lack of goodness. It's it's me that's not measuring up. And that is a terrible burden to oh, put wow. on people. And so either way, you end up with something about God that's not that's kind of right but kind of not, mm-hmm. you know, on, on either way that you kind of end up approaching it. And so for me, a lot of what had to be unmade was— um, For some reason, even though I walked away from the way that I had been taught to understand God, particularly from the Word of Faith movement, you know, years ago, 20 years ago, even, I was surprised how much of a secret prosperity gospel still existed in my heart. Mm. How much I still kind of really, even though I said I didn't, maybe I really did believe that if you are faithful and if you are good and if you're a winner, Jesus likes you more, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And they're having that unmade, um... You know, over and over again, really, anybody's life, you know, you you encounter the fact that, that that's not true, right? Um, but that was one that I was surprised by, I think, um, as I grappled with it. I think especially because I had spent a lot of time um, undoing that actively for the last 20 years and really um, finding the nearness of Jesus, uh, particularly on the margins, of our society and seeing that that's actually the center of the kingdom of god what we consider the margins is actually the center of the kingdom of god and so you know re re-understanding that remaking that um was really helpful for me um and it was definitely a reset but at the same time i mean going into even you know the next question i know you were planning on asking uh, in a lot of ways then i backed away from the language of miracles i backed away from praying for miracles from praying for healing from believing that those things would happen and instead it just became you know a nice story and so having things like the miraculous breakthrough in my life in an actual real way was unexpected and undeserving and in a lot of ways very disruptive right it's like well i had a tidy narrative my tidy narrative was that this doesn't happen anymore, you know? And so there was always kind of this counterbalance of, of both. And I didn't get Mm -hmm. to have, I didn't get to have an either or story. I had to, I had to be able to hold both of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Man. I like a lot of that too in your book centers around like wrestling with the, um, like chronic pain, right. That you now have as a result of this, this car accident. And, um, you know wrestling with that and and struggling with that and um you know going through these struggles of like how you know my older children they know like mom pre and post car accident but then like what about my younger children they're only going to know this part of me and um so a lot of that like the the honesty and the wrestling there uh to me was just so very helpful and then um something I guess strange happened out of the ordinary uh So you got invited to Rome by the Pope? Is that. (laughs) (laughs) Listen.
2: I don't even. I still, when I think about it, I'm like, what the hell? It's just bananas. So, I, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things. Um, this is kind of like the fulcrum of the book or the turning point kind of or, or moment in it. Yeah. Um, you know, like a lot of Protestants, I have complicated feelings around Catholicism and, you know, or, you know, both in the past and, and currently right now with a lot of abuse scandals and, you know, residential school history here in Canada. And, um, but the Pope had a very deep encounter with the Holy Spirit during the Charismatic Catholic renewal that happened in 1967. And they were having their 50th wedding, fiftieth anniversary for that movement. And in this great show of ecumenical unity and the longing, I think, for ecumenical unity, the Pope um, had asked his bishops to round up a motley crew of Protestants to come and join with them in celebration of that movement, um, particularly those of us who come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background, um, and be alongside of them in a prayer vigil and in a kind of a sense of what would it look like to do this together. And so, you know, that just a, it was a winding path, but um, an invitation was issued to me, and uh, when it came, we just kind of made the decision to to take him up on it, and we showed up in Rome.
0: <laughs> Man, that that's so crazy. That
2: it is a little crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so cool though. It's. That's I was like, like such... do, they, do they know I wrote Jesus Feminist? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think probably the Pope read that and was like, yes, bring her, please. Let's this book is gr- amazing. Gr- yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: It, it was a really eye opening experience, I think. Um, you know, for me, I was surprised at how close minded I was in a lot of ways. I've always kind of prided myself on being rather spiritually open. Um, and yet I just had my bluff continually called that entire, entire time that we were in Italy, uh, and just relentlessly surprised by the Holy spirit for sure.
0: Yeah. And there, um, like you, I think you did such a beautiful job. Like you told your story about like walking through, um, Italy and and like seeing all these things and and talking about like the physical pain that you were having with that, and also it like paralleled your your spiritual journey going on as well like um having these interactions and you had like a really crazy um interaction with with two gentlemen that first your husband met and then you ran into again um can you share uh that story with us
2: sure um Oh, I don't know hardly how, how to say it in a short amount of time that would be useful. <laughs> to your um, but yeah, I mean, we we had an encounter with a couple of uh, of Anglican priests actually uh, who are based in Canada, um, and my husband had an encounter with them uh, right after we were leaving the Apostolic Palace, and it was kind of one of those encounters where you walk away and you're like. Were they angels or was that (laughs) real? And you kind of just almost have this sense of like distrusting almost what kind of happened. It just felt a little bit too on brand. Yeah. Yeah. And so and these two men just kept popping up. Um, throughout our time in Rome. It didn't matter where we went, there they were. We would be in crowds of 60,000, 70,000 people on Pentecost Sunday, and somehow they would be right beside us. Or we would gather with 12 people in an upper room to pray, and somehow they were there. And it just was kind of one of these things, and and the encounters with the Holy Spirit that we had that was um, in relationship to uh, their presence was uh, really remarkable and in a lot of ways messed with, I think, all of us. uh, that were there, and um, and yet at the same time, it was very ordinary, right? Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything particularly spectacular, maybe from the outside, um, and yet, yet God was at work.
0: And yeah, that hmm. it's so crazy too. Like the the story that you share, the the really crazy um, story that you share about them in the book um, was just so like mind uh, mind-boggling to me, and and so cool. Um, and I want people to, to go out and read your book. So (laughs) thank you. Yeah. So, uh, to, to be fair to your time, um, the way you tell a story at the the end of the book uh, that I think was just so uh, beautiful and really wrapped things up nicely. And it's in your chapter that you called broken flowers. Um, can you just give us the, the rundown of that? And then I know you have to go and we want to be respectful of your time.
2: Well, thank you. Um, well, at the the church that we were we were at, they had an Easter service tradition of, you know, when you would walk into the church on Easter Sunday, there would be, you know, an eight-foot bare wooden cross wrapped up in chicken wire. It's just the most <laughs> hideous thing you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> really upsetting. <laughs> so the first time that I saw it, I remember feeling very, almost like a visceral, you know, drawback from it. It was just very, didn't seem very Easter-y. Um, But then as the service went on at the end or the middle point of the service, I looked as the whole community of the people of God um, had buckets of flowers under their seats or, or bouquets of flowers or, you know, kids had stopped and, you know, picked crocuses along the highway or something or not the highway, but, you know, in their front yard and things. And so. At the point in the service, all of a sudden everybody began to just flow up towards this cross and thread the chicken wire with the most beautiful flowers mm-hmm. um, you had seen. So by the time worship was done, this thing that had been so um, upsetting and ugly uh, was transformed, and death even was transformed into something that spoke of new life and beauty and mm-hmm. resurrection. And it was incredibly moving to me, just the metaphor of it, but even just seeing it actually actually. actually happen at the hands of the people whom I worship with and who are my people. Um, And so I've always loved this, Uh, tradition that we had within our community and uh, look forward to it all year long. I cry the whole service in (laughs) anticipation of it and then when it's happening. And so on this one particular Sunday though, um, we had brought our flowers and um, I had, uh, our youngest was quite small at the time and I had her in my arms. And as we were kind of worshiping and we were standing and people were kind of moving around and um, when it came time to go and put the flowers on the cross, my uh, uh, one of my daughters just was almost in tears and she just pointed at my feet and she said, Mommy, she says, you've been stomping all over our flowers. And, you know, sure enough, like they had somehow kind of moved out from underneath my chair and I had basically ground them under my feet as I was kind of, you know, swaying with the baby as moms kind of tend to do when you're moving around, keeping be copy and stuff. And so, of course, you know, just their, you know, bruised and broken, decimated flowers. And so the lady in front of us gave us, a, you know, a bunch of her flowers. It was very kind and generous of her. And then, um you know, we went and did the whole thing, and I came back, and the kids were kind of dancing in the aisles, and everybody was having a great time, and I could not get these broken flowers out of my mind. And so, there was um, a passage of Scripture in Isaiah that actually, I believe, was, you know, Holy Spirit were kind of recalled to my mind that there was a bruised reed, he will not break. And there was a sense of If the only flowers that are welcome on our cross are the ones that are beautiful and flourishing, uh, then we're missing something about the gospel. And so gathering up all of those broken, um, you know, ruined flowers, uh, the ones that were bruised, that were ground underneath someone's heel, whether it was because of things like what I have walked through with my health or abuse or, you know, any number of ways where we are bruised by this world, um, those also belong on the cross. Mm -hmm. And so having that moment to thread those through um, with all the beautiful flowers, knowing that these ones were also tucked in there and also precious to Jesus and just as much a part of resurrection Mm -hmm. uh, was really meaningful to me that Easter.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. Marty, I think you might have something you can steal for uh,
1: your Easter (laughs) service. (laughs) I literally I literally wrote down. Cross with chicken wire. add flowers by each person. (laughs) (laughs) I took a note because I happen to be a worship pastor, and so I'm always looking for uh, creative but beautiful ways to include different things in the service. So it seems like a really great—actually, it seems like a Good Friday thing that you could do as well. Um, We we tend to do a great Good Friday service, so that might be—you never know. (laughs) Thank you for that.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you uh, so much for your time. Um, really appreciated it. And, uh, we'll be sure to, uh, to link your, uh, book in the show notes so people can go and pick up a copy of that. Uh, we'll link uh, your other books as well. Um, but is there like a, a website you would like people to check out for you or where can people find you?
2: Sure. Um well if you just go to com, that's kind of the hub for everything. It'll have my speaking schedule, it'll have all the information about Evolving Faith and my e-newsletter that I do and my books and god help you even my Twitter feed. You know <laughs> so everything, everything's all all right there at com. and thank you for this conversation gentlemen. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, thank you, you so
0: much. I'll uh... I've been looking into going to the Evolving Faith Conference for a couple years, and uh, hopefully, I can make it work this time. It'd be awesome to meet you in person.
2: Yeah, we'd love to have you. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, Sarah, take care.
2: All right, thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Right, thank bye,
0: bye. Thank you.
1: Go Caps. <laughs> go Blackhawks. And for Sarah, go Bruins.